All right, everyone. So I know that Dr. Koontz is like totally prepared for this show. Like he's always prepared, but he's really prepared for this show. And that gives me one chance to derail the entire thing. And that is my opening question. It has to be so unique and interesting to him that he actually like gets rid of everything else he wanted to talk about <laughs> and goes after this, <laughs> which this may not do it, but it definitely is going to be a, a, a acerbic, uh, exploitive, uh, uh, blow up uh, poke the bear here, poke the bear, um, without really, you know, meaning to, I just know I'm going to, but here, here's the thing. Uh, in, in today's world, there is more and more noise about how one ought not be anti-Semitic. And generally, I've not like disagreed with that when anyone says that. But I'm finding it harder and harder to know what a Jew is, honestly. Uh, so that's my question for you, Dr. Kuntz. What's a Jew? You got two basic ways to answer that, biblically speaking, which is your best and most reliable source for anything, but certainly for this question where the people group is concerned. A Jew is one inwardly, Paul says, who actually devotes himself to the honor and praise of God. So that person has no specific ethnicity. And that's a rare metaphorical use of the term, but it is important to remember because other things are not used metaphorically in scripture, but literally for God's people that are not, are also like this question of being a Jew inwardly or a Jew in secret, Paul says, that are not metaphorical and are applied to God's people, such as probably most importantly for this discussion in the modern age, the term Israel, which is God's people who have an ethnic dimension to their history as lots of things have an ethnic dimension to its history, as Lutheranism has an ethnic dimension or American Christianity has a generally different, more Anglophone ethnic dimension. So there's an ethnic dimension to the term Israel historically, but it is used for God's people, which is not an ethnically exclusive uh, group. So that metaphorical use of Jew by Paul is important to keep in mind when you're talking about the literal use, which is a term that you get as soon as there is an exile for people that call themselves Israelites. And if you read the scriptures carefully, you'll notice that Paul, as well as all of the other writers in scripture, and this is easiest to notice with our Lord's speech in the gospel of John, is that Jew is what's called an, an exonym, an outside name for the people who call themselves, that's an endonym, an inside name, call themselves Israelites. And it's a slight misapplication, as outside names usually are, of the term Yehuda or Judah for for what are what are then called all Jews, but what which would all call themselves, you know, with varying tribes, Judah being just one of them, Israelites. That question of descent and then identity of who is Jewish and who is not over time has a really big ancient change, but it also has modern dimensions to that ancient change. And the ancient change is the shift in the time, let's say, of what we would call early Christianity. So about the first 400 years of the modern era, maybe a little bit, or I'm sorry, modern era of you know, the, the AD years, the years of Christ, 
it's not modern at all, really. Those first several hundred years are a time in which Jews are scattered as a group, perhaps more than ever before, most of it exacerbated, if not caused, by the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. Because of that, some of some of those people are going to become, they're going to become Christians. The Bishop Eusebius in his History of the Church talks a lot about the mostly Jewish early Christian church in Jerusalem and then how that changed after the destruction of Jerusalem in 135, not just the temple, but the, the city in 135. So some of those people are going to try to be Jews without belonging to God's Israel. That is, they want to be Jewish without acknowledging Christ as Lord. So they're going to pursue what will come to be called Judaism or specifically usually rabbinic Judaism. So they follow rabbis' traditions, the predecessors to those people, but not exactly the same group, theologically speaking, are the Pharisees in the Bible. Other Jewish groups like the Sadducees and then a group that flourished for a while in the Middle East and medieval times, the Karaites, who reject rabbi, rabbi rabbinic tradition, they're going to more or less fall apart. There are still Karaites. There aren't really Sadducees. But the thing that's complicated about that in the modern day is that that group has shifted from tracking its descent, as you can see they do in scripture, by virtue of the father that's called patrilineal descent in the father's line to matrilineal descent. So the rabbinic definition, the Talmudic definition, the current definition of who's Jewish is according to Jews themselves is whether your mother was Jewish. And that's not only not biblical, it's it, it also gives evidence of a group that has been in various times and places, destroyed as a group, which leads to a lot of confusion about who is Jewish and who is not today, because you would you would only start tracking female descent if you couldn't figure out who your dad was. And that happens to conquered people, and that happens to scattered people, and that happens to people who have been destroyed, right? Um, and those those curses or the destruction of Jews as a as a political entity or as a group are things that are accompanied in the prophets by description of their hardness of heart. So there are other groups that track descent matrilineally. Most American Indian groups have done that historically, but there's always a history to tracking just where mom came from and not where dad came from. Because of that, there's discussion that really is largely, even in English, internal to Jewish people about who they are and where they came from and endless research into their genetics, partly partly for the sake of uh, tracking genetic diseases that are unique to various Jewish groups. So, and you got a lot of different Jewish groups. The one that is most culturally familiar to English speakers would be Ashkenazi or Central European Jews. Ashkenazi Jews, for example, have as a group an overwhelmingly disproportionately high rates of breast cancer and also sort of a genetic disease unique to them called Tay-Sachs disease. So there's genetic research for that reason, but there's also genetic research because in various times and places after antiquity, so in what we would call the Middle Ages or the modern age, Jews have, who is Jewish and who is not has been confusing even to Jews themselves, let alone to non-Jews. And so you get 
a book that if the reader is interested in this answer, and I'm I'm not going to let Pastor Fisk distract me for the entire hour, but if you're interested in this answer, <laughs> the book, The Invention of the Jewish People by Shlomo Sand, I believe is his last name, huh. is, I mean, it was controversial, but it's an important book because he lays out, you know, the question of, for instance, if, you know, if these various groups are all Jewish, right? So somewhat famously inside Israeli politics, you have a really long standing discussion about whether African Jews are going to be segregated or integrated. Hmm. Okay. And that's ongoing. And they're currently very much segregated, even when they're allowed to settle there. But, and those African Jews are largely Ethiopian, the Falasha. But what you're dealing with there is the question of if we're all Jewish and we're all related, how did we get to be so different? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, where did we come from and who are we and what does it mean to be Jewish? And if being Jewish is just adherence to Jewish law, then lots of people could theoretically be Jewish. And that's 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 really the most common ancient answer. That's how you can you can find people who are are on the verge of, in the case of many of the God fears, on the verge of legally becoming Jewish in the New Testament, but then they don't. And the apostles are clear that they don't have to become legally Jewish in order to be part of God's God's people, God's Israel, God's church. So how did how did any of this happen? And you know, there's a sort of Eastern European kingdom called Khazaria that was apparently officially Jewish. So you're talking medieval sort of Europe, Eurasia are European Jews descended from them. So there's 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 a lot of debate about this. I mean, genetically, your average European descended Jew is genetically speaking, is going to have genetic markers from the Middle East and from Europe in almost equal quantity. So someone came from somewhere else at some point else. But just to kind of muddy the waters on that, you know, which is a genetic definition or a biological discussion of this rather than a legal or historical or religious one is that a lot of people who are Italian, particularly the farther south in the Italian peninsula you go, you go, were were not, as it were, Italians when Caesar was killed. They were brought there from the Middle East by the Romans to work the farms, the the giant farms, the Latifundia of the Italian peninsula. So they're Italian now, right? Whatever you want to say Italian is, they're Italian. But they would also have Middle Eastern genetic markers too. So it's complex for that reason. And that's also part of why I started with the metaphorical Pauline use of a Jew inwardly or a Jew in secret, because it's actually a lot clearer and easier to answer than the literal definition of what is a Jew, especially because they completely switched between biblical and post-biblical definition from patrilineal descent to matrilineal descent, which just obviously reflects both a historical destruction, but also an incapacity to actually say where you came from. Yeah, a lot, a lot more than irony going on in that. Um, so, I, I think out of this, the the limited epoch of any people groups claim to being genetically something right, is a lot more limited. Then we like to think when we look at a map and we're like, oh, my ancestors are from there. And so we're all one big club. Like it's just 
what you're getting at here is there's so much complexity in human history, in the migration of peoples, in uh, rise and fall of empires, which leads to destruction yeah. of things, right? So that right. you know what what's an Italian, right? Like in, in well, not Julius Caesar. I mean, is he? Is he not? Right. And so, okay, so that's that's all in the babble of trying to find your way through history. But now yeah. my question really comes down to like a, like a little bit of a different question. So let's say today I want to know what Jews think. Like cuz maybe I want to join them, right? Mm -hmm. Like who speaks for them? Right? Like we got the pope and some of us are like not him, right? But at least we we know that's the fight, right? Right. There's those who say the Pope and those who say not him. What are the Jews? Do the Jews fight over who's in charge? Or is this yeah. all like super secret oh, yeah. cabal stuff? Yeah. No. And I think part of this is that even in English, most non-Jews are not... Non-Jews, especially in America, where Jews are more assimilated than they've been anywhere besides pre-World War II Germany, to be, you know, to be honest with you. We, we've mentioned that before, is... That they're not aware of Jews' own thinking about their own distinctiveness, even apart from religion. In fact, in the West, almost always apart from religion. So there are special Jewish publications. I mean, I'm just thinking in English, both in America, you know, the let's say the Anglophone world, but also in Israel. And that distinctiveness involves a variety of things, but generally boils down to genetics. And that's that's how, even if you have no religious practice whatsoever, you're still going to call yourself Jewish and participate in being Jewish in a way that has no religious component at all. So if you go to the National um, American Jewish Museum, National Jewish American Museum, I want to say, I'm fudging the acronym right now, but it's in Philadelphia. There is a sort of Jewish interpretation of Lady Liberty sitting on a throne outside of the outside of the museum. This is real close to Independence Hall. What you're going to find in there is, you know, really pe people that are really only united by genetic affinity. They're not they're not really united by anything else because they have their own sort of sub-ethnic histories. In America, I mean, American Jewry starts with the Sephardim who come from Southern Europe, largely the Iberian Peninsula, and they have a different, they have a different culture. They have a different Jewish idiolect called Ladino that they speak, not Yiddish. The museum, as American Judaism is, is largely dominated by the history of Ashkenazi Jews from Central and Eastern Europe, but there's other stuff in there too. The only thing that they have in common in that way is genetic closeness, as it were, even between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. So, you know, to have to have a sort of equivalent, you'd have to have like a, you'd have to have like a Scots-Irish museum that had like sort of small subcomponents of, you know, people with indubitably English last names who also partook of the same culture or German last names who also partook of the same culture in Appalachia or something. We don't, we don't really think in those terms, right? But they do. And the something like the tablet, which will give you all kinds of discussion of issues that Jews are discussing internally, or a lot of political divides in American or, or English or even Israeli Jewry, which is kind of the term they still use for 
their people group apart from religious aspects of it is going to be divided up by the varieties of religious practice or non-practice that you get that will sort of track with this person's Jewish, but he believes that Palestine should have its own state. So he's almost undoubtedly going to be highly irreligious or really strangely and alternatively, he's going to be a Hasidic Jew who believes that the state of Israel is theologically illegitimate. So these things are fairly predictable, but they're really only internally known. And to the outside world, generally American Judaism or Jewry, you might say, rather than just speaking religiously, American Jewry is going to present a united face politically. And that's true anywhere that you get significant Jewish communities, Argentina, England, and certainly Israel. They generally will keep the debate utterly, I mean, completely internalized so that your average American has no concept of how a Republican Jewish representative disagrees vehemently with a Democratic Jewish representative. You're only going to see it when they're talking to each other. Huh. I wonder if there's any lessons to learn there. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, I wonder. <laughs> uh, uh, so that means that in in the, the answer you just gave, um, world Jewry has within itself as a culture and a heritage the capacity for those who would deem themselves believers to operate with those who deem themselves unbelievers mm-hmm. under a structure yeah. that is still effectively built by those who are believers to some level, right? Like there's this, there are these rituals and things that come from the old believers at least. And we do those mm-hmm. things to be who we are taboo and, and all that. Um, but I guess what I'm still like really wondering is like, so I, I you know, David Letterman, I, I get it. He's Jewish. But you know what? I I don't buy it, dude. Nope. You're not, you're not a believer in your religion, whatever. Call whatever you want. It's not your religion. And yeah. and so what I want to know is if I want to figure out what religious Judaism actually believes today, you know, who are yeah. the players in that? Hasidic, you mentioned Hasidic for sure. And that's fascinating that they're like nation state of Israel. I learned about that because they were at some event in Iran, like helping with Iran, protesting the nation state of Israel. I'm like, what is going yeah. on? You know, um, right. so what a fascinating thread. Uh, but it, what? who are they? Who else with them would be the faithful, the remnant that's, that's fighting for um, what I really want to get at then is like, do they really think they're going to put the temple back up? Is that really a game plan for yeah, they do. goodness organizations that are religious, that are having to do lots of things with money and national politics on this planet? That'd be worth knowing. Yeah. Yeah. So. They, they, yeah, they actually do. And let me begin to respond to that by portraying it. What, what, what actually unites them here? And it's, it's that genetic descent is actually central to both the religion and the people's sense of themselves apart from religion. And the difference there is that when you're dealing with a non with with an, almost any Gentile nation, certainly any group of Gentiles that is just simply non-Jews who are also Christians and therefore within the political framework of Christendom or historic Christendom, is that what you're dealing with is that we recognize a distinction between eternal goals and temporal goals. 
as we do when we confess our sins and we say temporal and eternal punishment. Those are those are two different times and two different sets of consequences. And one is much graver than the other. They don't recognize that distinction because their understanding of the afterlife is completely wrapped up in their own concept of both having the right and then perpetuating the correct genetic descent. And in that way, Judaism functions religiously, but then also as an ethnic group, more like a pagan religion than like Christianity, Mm -hmm. where it's really important to reproduce and then name your, you know, your children after your, you know, your parents in say, you know, most forms of traditional African religions, because they believe in something that is approaching reincarnation through procreation. Okay. Christianity just understands the the relationship of this life to the life of the world to come very differently than really any other religion because of our understanding of who Jesus is. So that, that unity between immediate ethnic political purpose and long-term purpose, the distinction is not really available in Judaism, as it's also not available in Islam, as it's also not available in most religions. That also, But here's the problem, is that Christians then come to see eternal goals as the only goals. And a distinction is not the same thing as a separation. So I can work with well-meaning people who don't go to church, who want to make my nation better or my my country better or my state better or whatever it is, I, you know, I can work with them. I, I don't, I don't need to agree with them or vehemently disagree with them about eternity for the sake of what are in the whole scheme of things, limited political goals. Jews have ferocious internal debates because it's all on the table at the same time, because even the religious people are pursuing something that to us seems very earthly. Now, it it has something to do with the Bible sometimes. What it usually has something to do with, and this is important for understanding Judaism, the religion, is that what it really has something to do with is the Talmud. It doesn't really have that much to do with the Bible directly. The only Jews I've ever known who knew Bible stories, at least as well as a you know, Missouri Synod Lutheran homeschooler, were ironically, in the whole scheme of things, very liberal Jews. They were Reformed Jews because part of the Reform movement, in addition to singing hymns to chorale tunes and having confirmation because they're of German, they're of sort of German origin is that the reform movement actually has people read the Bible directly and does not use Talmudic law. Hmm. But those folks in the whole scheme of things outside of certain suburban areas of the United States don't matter. And in Israel, they don't matter at all. The Jews that matter religiously are the ones who have at, who adhere to the Talmud either as Hasidic Jews or as more commonly what are called modern Orthodox, which would be a person like Ben Shapiro, but would would be institutionally something like Yeshiva University in New York. And those, those folks matter because they participate in modern life in a way that the Hasidim don't. And their birth rates are not as high as the Hasidim, but they're way higher than irreligious Jews. So they continue to exist as a group, whereas a majority of men who identify themselves as Jewish, which could include people that aren't 
you know, Talmudically Jewish, right? That's why I say it that way. But men who describe themselves as Jewish in the United States, most of those men marry non-Jews and then don't raise their kids as Jews. So the group identity gets diluted over time. So the people that matter long-term are the people who are having children and keeping them Jewish, which is effectively either ultra-Orthodox, that's the Hasidim, or what's called Orthodox or modern Orthodox, which would be like a, like, yeah, like a Ben Shapiro type person. Interesting how America's chewing them up too. Um, it, it, that's a, that's a powerful, powerful weapon we've got here with our culture. Um, all right. So I, I'd love to keep chewing on that, but that's probably good for now. Uh, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> you want to talk about bringing together two schools of thought yeah. in order to overcome a limitation of the past uh, that you see both in our Lutheran heritage, but also maybe a little wider. So why yeah. don't you just lay the groundwork and I'll try to chime in with questions if I got them. Yeah. And what we're talking about relates to what Pastor Fist just asked, because when I find people talking about a future, I generally find them talking about it in ways that honestly mimic Jewish strategies for continuing to exist in Gentile societies. And I think that's giving away the game. It also really is so exclusively devoted to the in-group without any benefit to anyone who is not in your in-group that I don't think it's fitting for Christians. So what we're talking about now are two, I think, much more charitable approaches to what the Spanish would call first in their own peninsula and then using the same methods in the colonization of the Americas in their own peninsula, they called it Reconquista. And that idea of reconquest is taken from the fact that at a certain point after Muslim conquest in the eighth century of the Iberian Peninsula, which had been previously exclusively Christian, and they were pushed to the boundaries of the Iberian Peninsula, and they had, therefore, minimal farmland, minimal capacities, almost no wealth, and very little outside help, is that over the course of the next roughly 600 years, they began to retake their own territory and to Christianize it. And there are two different institutions that they're going to use to do that, that they will then also use in the new world. And those are respectively the Presidio and the Mission. So a very different set of institutions is used in the colonization of British North America by English and Scottish settlers and that is partly because those peoples were not overtaken by non-Christians. And by overtaken, I mean the, the same set of comprehensive destruction of leadership and authority that we have experienced in the West for the Christian church and for Christians in roughly the past 100 years, but certainly in the past 50, such that what was normal and normative is now gone, is no longer normal or normative, and is actively denounced as evil in the same way that affirmation of the Holy Trinity would be denounced as evil if it were found inside the government or the military of Andalusia, which is sort of the, the Spanish version of what the Muslims called Spain after they conquered it, Al-Andalus. And you'll even find that modern people will 
mythologize the glories and the tolerance and the beauty and the wealth of Andalusia. And what they're really doing is they're eulogizing themselves. They're eulogizing people who control a formerly Christian civilization. Okay. So you're going to find that all over the place and you'll find debunking of that too, if you're lucky by Spaniards who say, no, Al-Andalus was not some kind of paradise. But partly because they don't face the same kind of hostility, the English primarily, and then later also the Scottish, are not going to use the Presidio or the mission. And we'll explain what these things are as we compare them. They're going to use instead the concept of a covenant and a covenanted people. And that kind of reliance upon group agreement is going to have a lot of effects that will cause the settlement of British North America to be vastly different than the settlement of Spanish, the Spanish Americas, but certainly Spanish North America. So we're going to compare like New Mexico and California and Arizona to not only the 13 colonies, but then a pattern that you see throughout. And what we want to do today is compare the Presidio and the mission to the covenant and the covenanted people in order to see not only their weaknesses, but especially their strengths, and to develop hopefully over time a hybrid model that will allow us to use the past for the sake of the future, which in a way is the, is the show's whole point. But this is to counteract a kind of despair that I think is perfectly understandable, if not commendable, that it's falling down or it's all falling down or, you know, it's funny, you know, the world's going crazy. But behind that, I think, is very often despair. And then out of that despair gets produced a severe nostalgia, even for things that the person personally was not around to see. So we talked about this in the Wittenberg Academy lecture that we put out last week as we record this. And we we want to develop those things basically for the sake of a future. I think before we define those four things, it's important to say that reconquest or in the case of the English settlement takes a long time. And that if you don't set up the group in order to have that kind of patience, you are not particularly going to achieve anything. In addition to that patience is the affirmation that these realities have to be on the ground realities for actual human beings. So they're not just about what we might call communication. So you can't just do this on the internet. You can't even do this just through sermons. Because what you're doing is trying to construct or reconstruct an entire society, which involves so many aspects of life that don't concern communication or ideology, as important as those things are. And we're going to talk about them in each case. So let me do some definitions and then we'll stop and kind of come back and we can discuss whatever I said, because Pastor Fisk is, is writing rather furiously. So I know he can jump in here, even if he's not up on his, you know, Andalusian history or something, not that any of us necessarily needs to be, but the definitions are these, the Presidio, and you can visit things like this in the Southwest in California. The Presidio is the fortress that is erected in order to garrison and then control the surrounding area. That's going to include military force, but it also includes economic power projected outward and the capacity to make political and diplomatic decisions 
the Presidio somewhat cripplingly ultimately for the Spanish and then for the Mexicans after them is going to be a little too tightly controlled by headquarters. But in its place and time, except when it has to make really crucial decisions for which it has to ask permission or something like that, and we'll talk about that, the Presidio is going to be very effective because it provides a place of safety. The mission is the ideological or specifically the theological extension of that mission, which is both the advancement of the Spanish nation, but also the Christianization of any peoples with whom the mission comes in contact. And although the Presidio can be staffed by family men, the mission is never, obviously, because you're talking about not just a a Roman Catholic clergy who have here and there through time have had children despite themselves, maybe, but very, very committed men. In the case of the Americas, overwhelmingly Jesuits and Franciscans. So these guys are not, generally speaking, messing around. They're doing their jobs and they're doing them very intensively and well. And so the mission is the place where Christianization, which involves a change of life for the various people groups that they encounter, is going to happen through both instruction, but also practical provision. So if I'm asking you to stop you know, running around naked and hunting in a subsistence way and to provide for your family better through agriculture on the mission is where you're going to find fields. And in the case of California, that's where it's, that's where it's wine industry at all comes from originally is the need to provide grapes for communion. That's also true for Arizona and New Mexico, but So the mission is going to be the place where the Christian religion is extended, not only for the Spaniards who are there, but also for the peoples around them. You'll notice that something similar doesn't happen quite so much among the English, and that's got various reasons, but let's define covenant and covenant people. This is partly a reflection of the fact that the English Reformation has lots of unresolved, I think, very practical theological questions, like what is Holy Communion, but it has a Calvinistic substructure that is prevalent even in the Church of England, such that the concept of a a divine covenant is basic and motivating. We've talked about this before on the show, but If you are a little unclear about what this means politically or historically, you want to read Max Weber, who was a Lutheran himself, talking about the energy and the drive and the certainty, the self-certainty of Calvinistic peoples. And for him, that includes everybody who speaks English, that their doctrine of election doesn't cause in the people at large, it might cause in the individual conscience, but in the people at large, their doctrine of election that they are elect, definitely, that that God elects some and damns others, definitely and actively. Their doctrine of election creates immense certainty and authority in the behavior of God's people. And so when they are going out, especially in a new venture, it is with the blessing of God. They'll reflect this by making covenants themselves. So you'll see, especially in the early history of New England, but also in the other colonies, the concept that covenants need to be made divine agreements and oaths sworn to God need to be made in order for a people to flourish. 
Okay. So if you've ever seen an evangelical put a second Chronicles 714 sign in his yard or on his car, that's, that's part of why. So they're always understanding the people group as directly answerable to God. There can be disagreements about how that needs to happen. Scottish covenanters in early America thought that America was lacking an explicit national affirmation of submission to Jesus Christ, and therefore they historically did not vote. But that's certainly not lacking in the individual histories of many of the states or many of the people groups that come to be American. Because of those divine covenants, you have a covenant people. That covenant people has to be kept pure. So this is something that you will find as a theme throughout American history, but also American literature and film. And it's part of my my love for David Lynch is that he reflects these things. That people has to be kept pure. So you will have innumerable debates about who is really the church, who is really pure, and you will also need to keep people pure from a world that affects it and I'm sorry, infects it and and surrounds it, where purity is always threatened. And you're going to see that in descriptions of the wilderness. You'll see it in how they handle the wilderness. And you'll also see it as the importance, as we talked about before on the show, of the concept of a frontier. That wasn't like a boutique lifestyle thing. Like I, I moved there so I could go hiking. It was that the frontier is always present and the frontier threatens you and you must master it. Something to notice here is that there's really nothing intrinsically, quote, individualistic about this. I honestly think that individualism as an expression of what it means to be American is a luxury that we can afford since the prosperity of the Second World War and the 1950s, and that people, and Lutherans often make this mistake, I think partly because they weren't predominantly English speaking until then. They think that individualism is somehow determinative of America. It it really isn't. There's much more group activity is extremely common and group certainty and group endeavor. Remember, that's how people actually went West was in groups. And that the, the American religion that Americans invented and has been most successful, which is Mormonism, is not characterized by individualism. It's characterized by extremely high group organization. So we're not even talking about something that is terribly theologically specific. You could behave in this way if you were a Methodist or a Mormon, but it is definitive for Anglo-American settlement. So I can like I can chart this out and draw some nice arrows yes, and stuff, right? That's yes, all sir. pretty cool. And and I, obviously, you've you've done a nice job of building a framework for just looking at the settlement of Christianity in this nation and and the way that it really did happen. You know, there's a lot of other smaller groups and and traditions that are involved in American Christianity, but uh, these two waves really kind of set the rut uh, for everyone who was going to come after. And so. Um, the, the question for me then on the ground, and you said this yeah. matters on the ground, not, yeah. not in Discord, is, okay, so so how, where, um, you know, clearly uh, the preaching of election is something that, uh, it, if you believe our confessions, it's meant to 
it's meant to uh, build you, right? The idea right. is yeah. that you've been anointed by the baptism of God. There's no looking back now. So stand up, you know, quit crying, right. stand up, get going. You know, every, every time you think you're not really a believer, the answer of your pastor is, yeah, you are. Now get over it and go do something better. Um, and so the, the, the value of that is, is quite powerful. So that's your, that's your covenant. And then, and you bring that to the Lord's supper, right? And you see that there as a pacted people gathered around this meal that endures and endures and endures. I wrote a whole book about it based on something by Herman Sasa without flesh. Please read it. Um, it endures, right? And so you have that, yeah. but then what it seems we're kind of missing, but look at this. Isn't this interesting? The Presidio uh, and the mission, the two things that the LCMS is most publicly used to talking about in any type of digital medium is whether or not we're voting for the Presidium or whether or not we're doing Mo Mission, Mo Mission, Mo Mission. So we've definitely got those words tacked on like signs all over the place and we've run them through programming planning committees and all sorts of color scheme changes um but i don't know that's not what you're talking about and so i I need you to tie that over a little more for me sure so let me let me start with the part that is going to be more familiar because it's simply vastly more influential in american history and that is the that is the covenant and covenant people concepts and it's influential because that that group's Idea, that group's ideas about how churches relate to the rest of life, mainly through fervent activity, sometimes through state sponsorship, but certainly enduring in fervent activity and as a compacted people, Mayflower compact, or they they are pacted together. You can see the influence of that even in the way that I think is a little bit it it it's less direct certainly than simply saying that the reason we that we have closed communion in a Lutheran church is because the pastor needs to know who he's responsible for caring for. It's it's pretty simple, right? That's that's really it's just good pastoral practice. And you can use the end of Hebrews to talk about that. We always explain it though in an, in in uh, the concept of you've entered into a compact with other people out of something taken somewhat indirectly out of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So we even answer questions in a way that involves you've made a compact, you need to hold yourself to it, rather than explaining them in terms of authority structures where the Bible is a little clearer that you are actually men who must give an account, right? That you're actually accountable to men who have to give an account to Christ for how they have cared for you or not cared for you. So you can see the influence of these things. It's just mattered a lot more historically. However, the reason to to crossbreed that Anglo model with a Spanish model is because the Spanish were in the Middle Ages and then certainly as an empire engaged in a much longer term project that is also much more similar to our own than anything that the that British colonists ever faced. British colonists were not facing, even even in the case of the Quakers, who had been whipped and beaten and killed in other colonies, let alone in England, were not facing the same kind of obvious political, political and legal and potentially military hurdles that we do. They had not been overtaken by a hostile power. They were facing great hostility. And we'll talk about the benefits of the covenant for understanding yourself as covenanted to each other, right? gathered around this altar, right? There are benefits to that. But the Spanish were simply facing a situation much more like our own in that they had been overtaken 
by people utterly hostile to them. I mean, in their own country, right? Such that my grandparents find it. I mean, they explicitly say this. They find this country unrecognizable. I mean, my my parents say that. Okay. So when you're facing a situation like that, you you want to take some kind of hope from people who face the same kind of thing. And the Spanish did that. The English did not deal with the same situation. Okay. So when you think about it that way, the covenant has the drawback of being insufficiently institutional. And this is where I think we have a natural tendency to rely too much on organic, what we think of as organic structures or emergent structures, or this will work itself out, or here is your media influencer, or here's your celebrity pastor, or here's your Tucker Carlson. And all you need to do is talk. And then we'll all agree on what we're supposed to be doing with enough talking or listening to talking. And then we can go do it. And, you know, it, you would you would sell the New England settlers short if you thought that they behaved in that way. But you also wouldn't understand how important institutions are that can be changed or renovated or established because the Spanish understood that. Like the value of simply holding territory via the Presidio is absolutely enormous. And if you're dealing with, a, you know, an Indian tribe in some river valley in Mexico and you build a church, the value of having that church and now... They're going to look at it and some of them are going to come near it. And what are these fields that you have is enormous. A, a drawback that Americans often have as part of our Anglo heritage is that we undersell the importance of institutions. Okay. We, we think, or we think we can just replace them very easily. <laughs> and the fact is that we can't. So there's something that tends to be sort of naturally chaotic about us, which is fine if you're not facing a steep uphill climb. But if you are, you need to just hold on to institutions and hold ground. Conversely, here's a benefit of the covenant is that very concretely, it creates high in-group inspiration for all people. Okay. So the Spanish had a problem attracting settlers. I mean, probably more Spaniards leave Spain to go to Cuba in the 19th century than ever went to Mexico or New Mexico or Arizona or California. Okay. So you you can and if you if you can if you can tell people, look, you are a group that matters to God, you are a group that's accountable to God for how you live your lives, that is very powerful for people. And it's true. So that's one of the benefits. And you'll notice that is that one of the strengths of the English, and then as they become in time the Americans, is that they don't need to wait for orders to come in from somebody else to do something. And that that can definitely be chaotic, but it's it's certainly an advantage on a frontier where no one's going to come help you. And it's also an advantage if you need to keep the group motivated without much or any outside support for a while. Okay, so we mentioned this with Jamestown is that that group is ready to give up at the point where the relief ship appears, right? But what if you don't think a relief ship is coming right now? It's very important for the group locally to understand themselves as engaged in something both divinely sanctioned, the way we're living our lives, what we're doing, how we're making money, the fact that we built a church, that we have a church, divinely sanctioned and important to God. So not only does he want it to be there, he cares for it. That's the kind of despair I often find 
this is just personal to what I do with, with planting and replanting is that I generally find that people are discouraged. Some very often they, they also have no idea. Well, how do I start a church or how do I get to know people? But sorry, <laughs> especially if it's a replant situation, they're, they're extremely discouraged. Yeah, they are. Right. Yeah. Because no one's told them you are God's people. God loves you. He cares for you. And that, that is a benefit is that without, often without sanction, but even more commonly without any help, the Anglo Americans settle a very hostile continent simply by virtue of their own momentum and a, a people that has a certain confidence whether well-placed or misplaced. I mean, we're, we're talking about divine things. They could have misplaced confidence too. But if they have confidence, they will simply get farther and achieve more, even if it's a little bit more chaotic than the way that the Spanish did things, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second, but I know you got, you well, got something. Not necessarily, but I, I do know that uh, for the Christian, even misplaced overconfidence tends to work for the good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, <laughs> right. and, and if yeah. you want the biblical right. example, you know, I, I do think of uh, Paul and Barnabas splitting ways. Yeah. And, right. Uh, you know, everyone wants that to be a big fight. You know, they certainly went over it a bit, but it's a place where uh, it's clear that, you know, this isn't roses all the way without the thorns. Right. And right. yet you got to reach out and, and do something about that. So to take from this, what I already reaffirmed earlier, which is that the doctrine of election is is uh, explosive nuclear material, if you, if you get yeah. a hold of it. Um, but also then, it, it is essential to any group, so people, congregation, church, body, family, you pick. Um, yeah. It is essential that right now you find ground you can hold and you hold it. And that goes from your your lot, your house, if you can, to the congregational building you got, um, to uh, well, you know what what is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and why should you care? That's a different <laughs> different world, a little bit. But um, you know, particularly I think about uh, with your building though, yeah. uh, because you know you have this alternative reality where you have you know, four buildings in one town of 4,000 people. And if they'd all work together, you know, the, how do I say it? The building's an idol for a lot of people. And so, you know, you have the need to have uh, reconquering of slowly dying inner city, deep country, wherever, on a corner, congregations. You also have a need of many of those congregations, along with believing that they're the people of God, believing that since they're the people of God, the building doesn't matter. We're going to survive. Right. And, and that distinction to me seems incredibly important right now, uh, because for many, in my experience, their despair is directly tied to their need to keep the building. That, that really is it. And if they would think outside of that box for just a moment, yeah. again, you'd find out Missouri Senate, how strong we are, if we can get over it. But but we do have to, this is all me trying to say, we have to hold ground. I promise you play risk and you hold too much ground and then, and then you lose. So you have to hold strategic ground. That's where, how do you do that, Dr. Koontz, uh, yeah. without real leadership, right? Without so real hierarchy. Reconquest has to happen first in our minds and every thought has to be 
taken captive and held in obedience to Christ. And what that involves is in this specific case of buildings and authority and congregationalism, not just as a polity, which Walther was at pains to point out and, and is actually true if you are in the weeds, is not actually the polity of the Missouri Synod, but it is certainly its mindset, is that congregationalism as a mindset involves thinking of yourself as the people of God and functionally nobody else as the people of God. And that ends up cutting short any attempt at reconquest that would involve anyone besides who is currently in your group. So what that would mean, let's say functionally in the case of the Spanish would be that instead of, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the the, the most Christian monarchs who send Christopher Columbus to sail the ocean blue are monarchs of Aragon and Castile, right? And that's because they they come from different places, respectively, the king and the queen. But it's also because over time, the Spanish learned that if they wanted to reconquer things, they needed to work together, even if they weren't going to just get rid of the fact that these provinces had their own histories and geographies and everything like that. So if you understand that in order to do something, you're going to have to begin to think about what God has set up as an authority rather than what is merely comfortable or traditional or, or currently thinkable to you, then you will come up with a lot more than if you wait for past solutions to create future solutions in and of themselves. So when you're thinking about authority, for example, you want to pay more attention to how the Bible describes it in the case of the family or the church or the state or whatever. And, you know, obviously we talked about that practically ad nauseum a couple of years ago regarding the state. You need to think about it in God's terms, not only so that you don't do something stupid right now, but also so that when you are building, whether it's a church building or an institution or a mission agency or whatever you're trying to do, that you build in a way that's going to actually be fruitful rather than lose people in a morass of, you know, holding on to your little piece of the pie or conversely. And this is really the, this is the mistake that the Spanish generally make is that they, they overly centralize decision-making and that, that, that not, that not only prevents timely decisions from happening on the ground, but what it more often prevents is current authorities from doing what they know needs to happen because they're worried about what's going to happen to them if it doesn't work out or if it looks questionable when they have the assessment at the end of their time there, because they're going to get cycled in and out of various presidios and other government posts. So if I can just play it safe and cut my losses, I'm probably going to do that because that's going to get me a better job soon than if I do something a little daring, such as Anglos would probably do because they're not answerable to anybody else, do something a little daring because when they come, and this is called the residencia at the end of my term, the inspector is going to say like, well, why did you do that? And then I'm going to have to explain it. And he's never been here, so he's not going to understand. So I just won't do it. So you have in the Spaniards too much centralization eventually, not in the Middle Ages, but more in the Americas. And you have in the Anglos a sort of chaotic dislike of all centralized authority. And that's not terribly helpful either. But you can see the historical influences here were obviously more influenced by Anglo-American history 
because in ourselves we like, and the Lutherans are not unique. I mean, Catholics have this dispute frequently in their own ranks and they have their own heresy called Americanism that sort of involves this is local lay control <laughs> even over all church affairs. And that's, that's, that's part of our, it's part of our Anglo heritage and it, and it has some good things, especially in a frontier situation, but in a reconquest situation, which we're, we're not in a frontier situation anymore in a reconquest situation, it has severe drawbacks because local people often don't see any picture bigger than whatever their, you know, local map is. And beyond that, they can't really think. And even more importantly, they don't really care. So the the Spanish model provides you with a way of linking together all these different locations, presidios and missions in some sort of some sort of overarching project. And that overarching project is of, of Christianization or re-Christianization in the case of the Spanish and, and Portuguese homelands, the Iberian Peninsula. That project of Christianization or re-Christianization is really what we're involved in as the gospel gets extended because the gospel never ends up just affecting somebody's thinking. And it never ends up just you know establishing a church building or two. It gradually changes entire societies. Yeah, well, on that, with, with just a few moments left, Yeah. Um, I, I was pondering for some reason this morning in the direction of how much the Lutheran current formulation of the gospel in mm -hmm. English is effectively an appeal to change your thinking, reasonably so, because mm -hmm. of grace being better, more or less. And, and how in that regard, then, uh, so much of what Lutheranism has tried to do with its attempt at mission in the last 60 years since we adopted that terminology, I think, I think we were much better at mission before we quite talked about it so much. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I no, mean, that, if you look at is, it historically, that's, we, empiri that's empirically true. Which is factual, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. so, uh, the mission that we have kind of worked ourselves into that term meaning now yeah. is basically about a an ascent to a knowledgeable proposition. And I, I just kind of have to convince you uh, that Jesus is God, that he paid for your sins, that you're forgiven. There we go, Christian. And and what I'm just struggling with a little bit is, is not that that's untrue. I don't think any of it's untrue. I believe that the creed is important, all these things, right? But like... I'm pretty sure that Christianity is a spirit. There, there is a, there's a way of being human that's distinct from when you're not a Christian, which has a lot to do with Jesus being God, for sure, um, but isn't just a knowledgeable ascent of the right facts about who did what for what doctrine. And... Um, uh, in that then, I mean, I think I'm on the edge of where like the debate about objective, subjective justification ends up taking off or something, some deep corner like that where we can we can again dogmatize it to death. But what what I'm asking is like, why would anyone want to join our churches? Because we're angry so, and have all the right answers. I mean, I, <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. I mean, that's that's like our pitch. That's our pitch. Yeah. You um, know? So I, go for it. Yeah. The notion of a way is, of course, 
how the Christians describe themselves in the book of Acts. And you see it as a way of life, similar to Proverbs, just in Paul saying, my ways in Christ, which involve how he makes a living and is not a burden to other people, for example, or the humility he approaches things with that he's commending to the Corinthians. That is that is part of what should or ought to be appealing about Christianity is that it concerns what gets called very vaguely spirituality now, but is usually captured by therapy speak in psychology today, that it should provide you with a way of life that is then modeled and supported by the congregation. That is not really to say anything about the notion of propositions, because revelation is itself propositional. There is one God, there is male and female, there is whatever else. These are all very basic propositions. I don't actually think our issue is that we are overly propositional. I think it is that we are inaccurately propositional. And you see this in the preaching of the apostles because they'll present the proposition that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah to Jews. And they don't lead with that in their preaching to Gentiles. They'll lead with God has raised a man from the dead, or all nations are accountable to God, or there is a day of judgment, or Jesus is resurrected. And so the propositions concern also, and this is this is why discussion of these things, both, let's say, in political circles, whether online or or in real life, but also in actual conversations you would have with somebody who isn't currently a Christian, often sounds they they sound strange or it sounds like we're trying to pull them into a certain sort of psychological dynamic of how law and gospel functions when their actual question is like what is a family and am i supposed to have one and that you need to just answer those things in a direct propositionally scriptural way and that would actually help them now you, there's lots of things that you need to communicate but that when you're when you're evangelism and apologetics are essentially engaged in the same thing. They have the same goal. And once you realize that, you realize that evangelism is not some psychologized subset of Christian speech where you're you're making them feel bad and that and then and then you provide the psychological or emotional salve in the gospel. Because let's be honest, that is what that's the dynamic that your pastor is trying to create yeah. in his sermon. Goal melody means right or... is that is that instead your job as a Christian or as a Christian preacher, I mean, Christian preachers just have a public version of a job all Christians have, generally speaking. There's a public ministry and there's a private ministry. I mean, these are old propositional categories and they're helpful in this way, is that you're proclaiming the word of God. So if the person's actual problem is that he wants to remove his genitalia or the person's actual problem is that you know she's she's drinking herself to death because she identifies herself as a wine mommy, but that practically that's just like alcoholism, then you need to address those things from the word of God. You, you you don't need to suck them into this, into some particular psychological dynamic. I mean, it's, it's actually a lot less complex, I think, than, than we make it because we, we don't want to talk to people about things that make them feel bad, but they already feel bad about them. Like, don't worry. <laughs> There's a lot of self-loathing that goes into her wine mommy existence, you know? And we, we don't, I mean, I don't, I don't even need to address that specifically. I can just say like drunkenness is wicked and it's hurting your family or whatever I'm going to say. But I, I think it's actually our, our biblical illiteracy drives our incapacity to evangelize because evangelism would just involve 
the proclamation of the truth of God pertinent to that human being, right? All summed up in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not actually complex. It just involves a certain amount of forthrightness. Well, and I'm trying to write down your exact quote now. It's a little long. Our biblical illiteracy is destroying our something to evangelize and pretty much spot on there. As the soul of Scripture, uh, in inheritors of the Word of God, as the power and fortress, and and you know, uh, what everlasting beam by which the church shall stand, you would think Lutherans would would have that one down, and we do in some respect. But uh, distinguishing here between the way of the Word, and uh, I don't know the the arguments about the Word that we've managed to get ourselves into. So like you said, you know, inaccurate propositions, or maybe the, it's better to say untimely propositions. Yeah. It, yeah, it's not is good. as yep. though the Lutheran distinctions about this, that, and every corner don't matter if you're in that corner, but right. very few people are in that corner right now. Right. Um, you know, most people are either worshiping demons, listening to demons, or trying to figure out what's going on and praying the Psalms more often. Like, that's it. Those are your three <laughs> options right now, right? So, uh, so yeah, it's um, exciting. It is exciting. Uh, I, I also think, you know, you, you said it last week and then it came up again, I think maybe in Discord or on Twitter, someone re- requoted you. Um, so it'd be two weeks ago for the listener. Um, about how there's a tendency in our circles, not so much to have propositions as negations, that that when we get to see ourselves doing to each other the way that you know Jews would not do in their internal dialogues, it is just publicly negating each other, um, and that this is sort of our big thing. It's like, well, we come to the come to the Lutheran Church and we can tell you what's wrong with every other church body, and well, I mean. It's true. So, like, it's true, right? But why are we leading with that? Why are we yeah, leading I, with the way of life and God's truth? Right? I think there's, I think there's an issue of misapplication of scripture in that because it, it's a, it's a reduction of almost everything to refutation. Whereas yeah. when Paul's trying to explain how to use scripture, there's both positive teaching and refutation. And there's correction and there's training in righteousness. So there's a negative and a positive side to how scriptures use respectively for faith and for life. And if I really just know negative refutation, this would explain a dynamic that I've seen in the wild, like Wells girl moves to new city, no Wells church, because why work that hard outside of the upper Midwest? And so she goes to an ELCA church because it's Lutheran and she's been taught that the Missouri Synod is evil. Right. <laughs> it's like, okay, like functionally and practically, like this is gonna one of these will actually probably proclaim the word of God to you, and one certainly will not. But she's been provided with so much refutation of say the Missouri Senate on church and ministry or something that that's actually seems to be more harmful than you know denying the word of God. So that's where you have an imbalance in application. And whenever you have an imbalance in application, it's like for for your soul, that is similar to only exercising certain parts of your body. You're going to have overdevelopment or underdevelopment, and that's going to mess up your body and your bones and lots of other things in time. So you need like a balance here. And a lot of us are way overdoing refutation to a degree that is often unnecessary or untimely, your, your good word. 
and we're underdoing, you know, positive teaching and then underdoing application to the way that is in Christ. I like how you you pulled that back to, you know, so many of us, because as it was going, I was hearing it just as describing the wells. And I couldn't disagree, actually, either. But but nonetheless, <laughs> it was nice to be included with them so they cannot hold us too accountable for <laughs> pointing other spots and all this. So, um, yeah, uh, we're, we're about out of time here. Uh, I kind of feel like I want to ask a question or two to close today about uh, the wild world of American everything. Um as we're sitting here, Elon Musk is just getting louder and louder. Is he, is it, am I only seeing him so much because Twitter, obviously he owns it. So now you right. see him every time you go on. <laughs> yeah. Genius. I mean, he knows what he's doing. Um, or is he making, is he making it out into the wider spectrum? And the same question goes a little bit for RFK and his presidential campaign in the Democratic yeah. Party. I find that fascinating. Um, and then I don't know for for a threesome to close it out. You know, what's your take on the current state of Ukraine and Russia's? They they blew up like billions of ammo or something. That yeah. was fun. That was fun to see. Yeah. Um, Ukraine and Russia again, as always. I'm going to plead semi ignorance, but I'm also going to maintain that without incessant injection of Western military support and materiel and and potentially troops in time, although I don't see that as likely that Ukraine cannot maintain what it is maintaining currently and in the foreseeable future with help from the US and Germany, particularly Germany really being along with France, who doesn't play the same ballgame, Europe's sole military power in any kind of objective sense. Without that, Ukraine cannot prevail. Now, there are a lot of factors in play here. So this is this is 1862 in the American Civil War. You know, anything could happen. So I don't know that. But just Russia v. Ukraine, I don't see how Russia doesn't eventually prevail just because of its enormous size and, and internal capacities. Also, the you know, what the Chinese are going to do diplomatically, I don't know. But that's semi-ignorance and up in the air. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even mention Title Forty Two in Taiwan. Please, please go on with the other two things I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> regarding regarding Musk and what Musk is saying, there is also the self sidelining and a lot of things we don't understand about the internal politics of Silicon Valley, which are also, as we learned from a variety of revelations during the Obama administration, also the internal politics of the Democratic Party. And the self-sidelining, the potential self-sidelining in favor of Linda Yaccarino, who is just such a standard Silicon Valley, you know, come World Economic Forum critter, means that Musk may be seeking some kind of relevance, but it or or pertinence or authority, but it's probably not in any kind of enduring way through Twitter. I I don't want to say this is like a one. I, I'm not saying that like I can tell you how long the Spanish Reconquista took, but that's that's my best guess. And that is because Musk is in a demographic with nothing backing him that RFK is also in, which is the straight white male demographic. And just as a demographic, that's already sidelined to some degree in the Democratic Party, but it will be and is increasingly sidelined in the Democratic Party. The difference between Musk and RFK Jr. is that RFK Jr. has an actual constituency. 
he also is from a family that is part of really what made the Democratic Party as functional and wealthy as it is outside the South. And that is, this is a kind of American ethnicity obscure thing, but that is the political importance of Irish Americans to the Democratic Party. And not only their loyalty, but also their fervency and capacity. And we talked a little bit about that with the Brown family in talking about California and the history of San Francisco. And RFK Jr. is a New England version of the Brown family, or they are the Kennedys of California or whatever you, to the extent that Gavin Newsom is connected to the Brown family Oh wow! and is, and is himself ethnically Irish Catholic. So when you're thinking about that, I don't see RFK's future inside the Democratic Party absent absent something unthinkable happening. Now, that could happen, but I don't see it inside the Democratic Party because he is not part of any favored protected class. And more or less vaguely Catholic, but definitely not vaguely Irish white males, as historically important as they are to the Democratic Party, are now basically just a slave labor class for the Democratic Party. They have no practical decision-making power, similar to tech elites or blacks or lots of other constituencies. So that's where I, I don't see a future for RFK Jr. But, you know, time will tell. I just hope he doesn't get assassinated. Well, that's kind that's... Of, I think it's kind of his game. I, I yeah. want it. I think he's begging for it. It's like, and I don't want to say it's heritage. Like, really, if it was my heritage, I'd be like, you know what? They died for it. It's still right. here. I'm going to shoot <laughs> right. me. Do it. Right. 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 Um, yeah. And and so this is where I see RFK's play at the moment as beautiful, uh, godly. So far as uh, you know, I don't know his faith, um, but it's it's the kind of thing a virtuous man. Uh, would do because he's going into a fight that in one sense he knows he can't win and the entire point seems to be is make as much noise as he can inside the beast as possible yeah, about things right. that are true and I find that uh, uh, inspirational which is also what I find inspirational about Elon when he says certain things sometimes he says stuff and it's just like dude that guy knows what he's talking about right he, he'll he'll pierce through uh, reporters you know with this kind of um, I uh, artificial intelligence like superpowers that he's got um, that makes me sometimes wonder if in fact AI does not already exist, has existed for years, <laughs> is Elon. Elon's never been seen. You just think he's been seen. Have you seen right. him? Exactly. And here right. he is making the play to take over all our brains with Twitter over the next three years. That could be true. I don't know. That probably checks out. Yeah. Probably checks out. <laughs> um, I, I do think he's, he's uh, wicked smart. And what he's doing is not on accident, and it's a bigger game than than we see because he's chosen to take on some pretty powerful people or play their stooge for a while, um, and that's a that's a powerful game uh, in the world of uh, whatever happened to the guy. Uh, uh, he made the uh, he made the computer like virus protection uh, McAfee McAfee. Right. Yeah, John McAfee. Yeah, well, yeah, well what he happened was to that guy. He know? was he was Epstein. <laughs> yeah. What what what? I don't know. Or Epstein was was allegedly McAfee. Yeah. So Yeah. All all these things. Um to bring us back to then, you know, yeah, China, Russia, BRICS, the world as we know it. You'll just have to wait for next week, everybody. Here's the hard and good facts that Jesus Christ guards the paths of justice. He preserves the way of his saints. And when you know that, then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good channel. We found a brief history of power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. 
The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.